There are people in England who will defend your right to walk on scenic and historic trails, even if they cross private estates. These were workers who trespassed on the Duke of Devonshire's land. He was only using it for 12 days a year for grouse shooting. From a mass trespass to a well-signed footpath, we'll get you ready to hit the trails from Cornwall to Hadrian's Wall. You can let your imagination run wild when you're up there sometimes. Let a great writer be your guide when you follow their steps across Britain. Peter Fiennes used the works of Charles Dickens and Wilkie Collins to show him a different side of England, Scotland and Wales. The book was a way of learning more about these authors as well as the Britain that they'd seen. But make time for tea as the afternoon winds down. The sandwiches, the scones, the strawberry jam, the clotted cream and the little pastries are just so delicious. Put on your boots for the hour ahead. We're hiking across England on Travel with Rick Steves. We'll work off some calories hiking around England before settling in for pastries and tea on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Peter Fiennes was disappointed by the Brexit vote, so he decided to take another look at England and Wales by exploring it through the eyes of a dozen great British authors. Peter explains how writers can be our tour guides in just a bit. And we'll get schooled in the fine points of afternoon tea time in London. We're at 877-333-7425 or by email. It's radio at ricksteves.com. It's been 90 years since the public's right to access open spaces in England and Wales was reestablished by a mass trespass up Kinder Scout in the Peak District, not far from Manchester. Today, the Rambler's ethic expects walkers to follow a countryside code of good manners on any of Britain's extensive marked trails and footpaths. Joining us with tips for enjoying a good English hike are tour guides Lorraine Deneen and Deborah Hayburn. Welcome. Thank you, Rick. Thank you. Deborah, you're from Exmoor, which is... Where is Exmoor exactly? Well, Exmoor is southwest of Bristol, okay. in the southwest of England. It's north of Dartmoor. And north of Cornwall, then, because a lot of And north of Cornwall. Oh, okay, that's And right. if you walk up onto the top of Exmoor, you can look north, and you can see over the Bristol Channel, and you can see Cardiff and Wales. And you've probably got a lot of good hikes within a short distance of your yep, home, then. Absolutely, yes, I have, yes. And many of them crisscross over some of the major long-distance oh, paths. And Lorraine, you live in the Cotswolds. I live in the Cotswolds, yes. Uh, my house is about 200 yards from the Cotswold Way. It goes right past our houses. So it's probably hard for you not to enjoy hiking. Well, it's yeah, just to get out good. and enjoy it's it. It's good fun, yes. Excellent you know, fun. I've gone to the Cotswolds for years, and I'm always working on my guidebook. And a few years ago, I decided, stop running around looking for hotels and restaurants. Take three hours and enjoy a walk. It Absolutely. Doesn't, it, you know, get up early, stay out a little later. There's long nights in the summer. And get out off the road. You see a different Cotswolds from off the road. You certainly do. And the footpaths are very easy to find, as you've probably found, because particularly somewhere like the Cotswolds, which is quite a popular area, there are always signposts that tell you where the public footpaths are. And those little yellow arrows will guide you across the fields. I love the post. I love the mix of culture and history and walking, and it's all so easy. And when you're all done, you can hop in a bus or take a taxi back where you started. You can indeed. There are lots of public transports around the Cotswolds now which pick you up and drop you off. And, of course, there are always pubs. So if you need a taxi, you can stop in a pub, get yourself a half a pint and mm-hmm. and call a taxi. Call a taxi after a half a pint or maybe a pint. Maybe a, a pint, taxi. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Deborah, you know, you've hiked all over the world and... England, there's just something about England that celebrates walking. What is it about England that is special for long-distance walks in this whole culture of hiking? 
I think although they're long distance walks, some of which can take, you can take as long as you like, but you mm-hmm. can take a week to two weeks. But you can see such a variety of different landscapes mm-hmm. in a short, a very short distance. I think that's really what it is. And there's this spirit of England that we can walk anywhere. We have the right to walk. In fact, tell me about the mass trespass. This is a fascinating sort of thing about England's hiking heritage. Yes, these were workers who trespassed on the Duke of Devonshire's land. He was only using it for 12 days a year for grouse shooting. And he put up a fence and he said, this is my private property? Well, he said, this is my private property, yes. And the workers in the new industrial areas of Manchester wanted access to that land. The Duke of Devonshire wouldn't give it, so they publicised a big walk, the Great Trespass, the Mass Trespass, and they called it a trespass because they were trespassing on the Duke's land. And um, the police were out, the gamekeepers were out, but they got to the top. So the, so the workers won? The workers won. And Lorraine, this exercise of the right to walk, you've got to be respectful, but you've oh, got yes. to be able to walk from A to B. Yes, yes, indeed. The mass trespass and the start of the 1930s on Kinder Scout was the formation of the Ramblers Association. Ah, there we go, because the Ramblers is like, a, it's a huge club of people that want to take care of yes, the trails yes. and defend the rights to walk. Absolutely. I think there are about 140,000 miles of public footpaths in England and Wales, and they reckon there's about 10,000 miles of lost footpaths that they're still trying to reinstate. So the Ramblers Club is helping spearhead yes, that. Yes, absolutely, yes. Deborah Hayburn lives in the high moorlands of Exmoor in southwest England, and Lorraine Deneen lives close to the Cotswold Way National Trail. They're getting us ready to enjoy a nice long ramble in the English countryside right now on Travel with Rick Steves. You can find contact information for our guests each week on our website, ricksteves.com slash radio. What are the, the top trails, would you say, Lorraine, in, in England? Um, there's the Pennine Way, which is about 250 miles, I suppose. It starts down in the Peak District, where the trespass was, and it treks north to the Scottish border along the Pennines, which are the backbone of England. OK, so the biggest mountains in England. There. Yes, sort, yeah. sort of, yes. The Pennine Way. The Pennine Way. What's another one? There's the Hadrian's Wall Walk. That's only about 70 miles, so you can knock that off in less than a week. So 2,000 years ago, the, the, the Romans, they took over as far as essentially the north edge of England before yes. Scotland, and they decided to build a wall to seal off the empire. They did. Much of that wall survives. I mean, it's ruined, but it's a yes. dramatic ancient site. Yes. It's 70 miles long. Yes, it's about 70 miles. It goes from coast to coast, uh, from Newcastle in the east to mm-hmm. the west coast. And to be all alone with the wind and the sheep... And that wall going across the craggy countryside, it looks, the the landscape is just ripped out of the geology. It's gorgeous. You can let your imagination run wild when you're up there sometimes, yeah. And the Hadrian's Wall Trail basically uh, shadows this this Roman site. Yeah, you can walk on the wall if you want to. You can touch the wall. You're with the wall the whole way, basically. I love that. Deborah, what's another great walk we want to consider when we're thinking about Britain and hiking? Well, of course, I live in the southwest of England, so I'm going to say the southwest coastal path. And that's the one that goes around Cornwall, isn't it? It is, yes. Because I was yes. exploring Cornwall and I kept coming upon the, what is it called, the, the southwest The southwest tramp? coastal path, yeah. Because it's well signposted. Very well signposted, And it yes. is, if you like, Poldark, you know, the dramatic mm-hmm. scenery yes. on Poldark. You are all alone with Poldark images. Yes. It is such a beautiful, beautiful coastline the whole way around. And not just Cornwall, but the North Somerset coastline, right. uh, the North Devon coastline, the Cornish coastline, the South Devon coastline. Spectacularly beautiful coastline. 
the north coast of Somerset on the coastal path has the highest sea cliffs in the country. The moor just tumbles straight down into the coast. And to walk that path with the highest sea cliffs in England on one side, you've got deer and sheep on the other roaming around wild. And then you come down with the sun setting in front of you onto the west is sublime. We're talking about hiking in England. We're joined by two English guides who love hiking, Deborah Hayburn and Lorraine Deneen. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. You can email us at radio at ricksteves.com. And Dee is on the line from Denver in Colorado. Dee, thanks for your call. Hi, thanks for having me on. I am excited about the possibility of hiking in England, and I wasn't sure if the areas that you've mentioned are ones that are similar to other places um, where there's like a hut system, and you can hike from place to place and stay overnight pretty easily, or accommodations can be found along the hike. You know, Dee, if you're thinking about those wonderful mountain refuges in the Alps of Switzerland and France, England just doesn't have mountains like that. England's mountains are like little hills, and there's villages scattered everywhere, so you don't really need those desolate mountain huts. But you do come across villages every so often and and so on. Let's hear from our guides. Lorraine, what about accommodations when you're on a multi-day hike? On a multi-day hike, there's a wide variety. There are bed and breakfasts, there are pubs that do rooms, there are hotels, and of course these days there's Airbnb rooms. Mm -hmm. And there are also companies that will take your luggage on to the next stop. I love that. It's a great idea. I like to have my gear, but I don't like to carry it all day. Absolutely, yeah. And we can look into those companies. I I hear nothing but good things about them. uh, They're great. It it has the convenience of they line up the B&Bs, the charming little guest houses. You have a beautiful, hearty breakfast. You're on your way and bags waiting for you at the next spot. Absolutely, yeah. That sounds great. There there are loads of those companies. Just Google them. You'll find loads. Dee, thanks for your call. Good luck on your long-distance hike in England. Thank you so much. You bet. And Glenn in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, has emailed us. And Glenn writes, I did a couple of long-distance walks a few years ago. I did the Wharton's Way in the Cotswolds and Cleveland Way along the coast. I climbed up Mount Snowden, and I did a day on Hadrian's Wall. I'd like to do a long walk that would pass castle ruins and interesting historic sites or find a cycle route relatively traffic-free. I'd rather not have to rent a car to get around. Have you got any suggestions? So Glenn has done quite a bit of hiking, and he wants a long walk featuring castle ruins and historic sites. The Wye mm. Valley, the Wye Valley Walk. What do you reckon, mm. Deborah? Oh, yes. That's a beautiful That's walk. That's in the south of Wales? That's a beautiful walk. It's, it's also sort of bordering between England and Wales. Okay, because there's a number of hikes along the English mm. and Welsh border, yes. isn't there? Yeah, yes. and the border moved a lot. So the Wye Valley, because it's a border, they had lots of castles yeah. to defend the border. So something like the Wye Valley Walk is beautiful and you'll find lots of castles. Would these be Welsh castles to defend against the English or English castles to keep the Welsh indigenous people down? Um, Both, 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 yeah, Yeah, because over the centuries, as the border moved, you'd have the Welsh building castles to kick the English out and vice versa. And sometimes you've got the same castle and one generation it's English and another generation it's Welsh. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been dreaming about hiking in England and mixing in all that history and culture. We've been joined by our guides and fellow hikers, Deborah Hayburn and Lorraine Deneen. Deborah and Lorraine, let's just finish with, with a favorite moment you've each had enjoying the countryside and the culture of England. Lorraine, what's a particularly magic moment that you've had that you can kind of paint a picture of? Well, when you're on these walks, it's, it's the people you meet. When I did the Wye Valley Walk, I remember meeting an American girl 
um, and she was walking it on her own. I was walking it with my friend and we hooked up and we spent three days together and we've been in touch with her ever since. It's just magical meeting people on these walks. You know, I got to say, the English hikers are just so convivial and there's just an etiquette almost of talking with each other and sharing information and, and having a beer together in the pub. Yes, and so the beer. So an American and the beer. And the beer. Plenty <laughs> of opportunities there. Deborah, what's a, a magic insight you have for this uh, wonderful dimension of England? I think it is what I mentioned earlier, actually. It is walking westwards and watching the sunset and the different light, the light through the day. You know, this is a very important tip because the sunset might be 9 o'clock. It might be late yes. in the day because oh, yes. this is if a very high summer. latitude. And to walk into the sunset, the shadows are beautiful, the colors are warm, the crowds are gone, mm. and you're surrounded by England. England, nature. Deborah and Lorraine, thanks so much. I felt like I was with you on those trails, and there's a lifetime of hiking to be had and enjoyed in England. Thank you, Thank Rick. you, Rick. Thank you. Author Peter Fines recommends letting the words of a great British author accompany you on a long hike. He tells us who inspired him to explore the country next on Travel with Rick Steves. And later in the hour, we invite you to join us for Tea Time in London. Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm from London, and it's absolutely fabulous to be here traveling with Rick Steves. I'd love to boast to my friends that I spoke to Rick. We're all sitting with bibs around our necks and our eyes glittering. <laughs> and um, from Patsy, I think, uh, Rick, you're fantastic. Cheers, sweetie. <laughs> Britain is a land of great writers with a rich literary tradition. And so much of that great writing is set on the road. These writers offer a surprisingly vivid time-tunnel experience to know the England of centuries past. Author Peter Fines wanted to see for himself 21st century Britain and compare it with the country and the culture memorialized by its great writers through the ages. Would these literary greats even recognize Britain today? Peter explores the books, the diaries, and journals of important British authors from over the centuries as he headed out to survey England's green and pleasant land. His book is called Footnotes, A Journey Round Britain in the Company of Great Writers. And Peter joins us now from the studios of the BBC in London. Peter, thanks for joining us. It's an absolute pleasure. You know, you really can't know your country or, or any country without actually traveling through it. Would you say England's literary greats recognized that and, and traveled to make their writing more vivid and, and more insightful? Certainly some of them did. I mean, some of them never moved at all. Um, but someone like Dickens uh, was an obsessive traveller, not just walking around London every night, but also getting on trains whenever he could and going all over the land. So, yes, yeah, some were very consciously travelling to try and make more of their writing. So tell us, in your challenge, when you set out to write footnotes, how did you travel and what was your goal? Well, my idea was I wanted to find a new way of looking at Britain because we've seen so many changes recently. And my idea was that I could get a selection of great writers, some of them not very well known, some much better known, all of whom had travelled at some point in Britain. And, and I wanted to steep myself in their diaries and their writing and uh, everything I had to say about their trip. And then I kind of step out of it, like stepping out of a train or a plane in a new land. And I thought, I thought it might help me see Britain more clearly if I did that. 
Well, you, you mentioned Charles Dickens. I mean, everybody wants to better understand Victorian London, and, and what better way to do that than to read Charles Dickens' accounts of it? Definitely, and his accounts of his train journeys. So the idea behind my, my book was that I would take 12 authors, there were six men and six women, all of whom had made these journeys, and the earliest was 1188 with a man called Gerald of Wales, and the latest was 1983, Beryl Bainbridge, who smoked her way around England then. I wanted to make all the journeys join up. It would be like a kind of baton in a relay race or a snowball swelling as it rolled. That We would go from the first author to the next and we'd never, we'd never leave them, as it were. So it would be a continuous loop around Britain. And you'd be jumping from century to century in a, in a, in a yes. fluid kind of way. Yes, and it worked in the end very well because the, the one I started with was a woman called Enid Blyton, who I don't think is very well known in the States, but she was by far our biggest selling children's author from the 1920s to the 1960s. Absolutely enormous. She, she wrote 750 books. Uh, very, very influential on us now. Her idea of what Britain is was very influential. It was all cozy villages and friendly bobbies and slight mistrust of strangers. So this 1950s idea of England, which still often permeates our view of ourselves. Okay, but that was that's relatively recent. What about this? You mentioned the author from the 12th century. What kind of insights from the 12th century, 800 years ago, could be helpful for understanding England today? Well, it's he writes very specifically. This is a man called Gerald of Wales. who was traveling around Wales in 1188 to try and drum up support for the Third Crusade, recruiting Welsh archers. Oh, yeah. And he had some really precise nature writing. And what's fascinating is that the land he describes is so different to the one we know. It was the land was full of wolves and beavers, which we don't have in Britain anymore. And uh, he has some very strange views on beavers. He believed they castrated themselves if they were being hunted because oh he thought we were pursuing them for that reason. So his, it's slightly fantastical, his journey, but that made it more, even more exciting to follow him. You know, that is 800 years ago, and yeah. yet so much of what he wrote resonates today. And then, yes, Dickens was the most remarkable. Some of the authors turned up more than once because they made so many journeys, so Dickens is in the book twice. Because the the theme that emerged was that I would start with childhood and end with death. So the last journey is Dickens's final journey in a coffin from his home in Kent into the centre of London where he was buried in Westminster Abbey. Wow, this is quite a puzzle you put together. You've got the map in your book that shows uh, the route and, and the different authors that become like the tour guides. That's right. And, and the great thing about um, doing it this way is you can read their writings and you can look out of the train window in the same way that they would have done and seen the same scenery passing by. Yes, of course, now there's pylons and cars and different yeah. things, but it's still Okay, well, what's an example, Peter, about, like, you're riding on the train and right, sitting right next to you is Charles Dickens, and he's looking over your shoulder and he's pointing and he's saying, look at that, and then he writes about it. What's something that Charles Dickens from the, uh, what, the mid-1800s would have instructed you as you're riding the train across the English countryside? Because Charles Dickens had so much energy and such a vivid imagination, his description of a train journey is like nothing else uh, that you would experience because halfway through the train journey, he'd be dancing with everyone in the carriage and be striking up songs and put, laying bets. And he was absolutely indefatigable. So um, the book was a way of learning more about these authors as well as the Britain that they'd seen. What about Samuel Pepys? I mean, he was the great, you know, famous diarist who... Uh, contributed hugely to our understanding of society in London back, what, in the 1600s? 
Yes, he did. And sadly, I had no room for peeps because I had a nightmare trying to choose my 12 authors. And uh. some of them were my favorites who I just put in and others I knew I had to have peeps. And yet, of course, I ended up without him. But the list is so long. I mean, I would have loved to have included uh, Jane Austen. And, you know, there were so many extraordinarily iconic authors who I just couldn't include. This is Travel with Rick Steves. Our guest is Peter Fines. He's taking us on a journey around Britain in the company of some of the greatest writers. It's all in his book, Footnotes. Peter's aim is to explore today's Britain by seeing it through the lens from the past, as found in the words of Britain's great writers. Peter's also written about his travels in Greece to search for meaning from Greek myths and legends in today's landscapes. That book is called A Thing of Beauty. Peter posts frequently on Twitter at P. Fines, and that's spelled F-I-E-N-N-E-S. You know, one author I'd love to walk with would be any of the great poets, um, the romantic poets, uh, William Wordsworth. I can just picture him with his rucksack and his notebook hiking across Cumbria in the Lakes District. Yes, he was. Uh, he would be a wonderful person to walk with. Coleridge, too, who was uh, an obsessive walker. He would walk for, for hours and days at a time, tossing out his poems as he went. But again, I had no room for them. I, and they appear in the book in little sort of bits and pieces, but not, they don't get whole chapters to themselves. I followed um, Johnson and Boswell, if you know them, around Scotland. Johnson wrote the first dictionary in the 18th century. It was fascinating following them because he became obsessed. He's a very irascible man. He became obsessed with how few trees there were in Scotland. And it's true that this is something that people talk about all the time now and um, yeah. there's huge rewilding uh, efforts in Scotland. But And if you talk with a historical writer... You're dealing with a time when landlords were English and the people were Scottish, and some of the landlords actually thought the people were more trouble than having sheep, so they would just kind of swap out the people for the sheep and make money off of Scotland. I mean, there's that whole political overlay. Did that come through very much in your studies? It did. If you look at the land, and precisely for that reason, you can see deserted villages in Scotland still in the middle of vast estates that are still only given over to grouse shooting or deer hunting or whatever. So this is still there. The politics is still there. You found the wilds of Skye particularly uh, enthralling. I did. I was um, very moved by the wilds of Skye. It's such a, um, well, it's a wild, windblown place um, with very few trees, as Samuel Johnson kept saying. But it's really moving when you go there. I mean, there's a bridge over there now, and he, Johnson, would have got there by boat. But even so, that was as far as I got, and I was looking for genuine wildness. And you can find it in the sky, as well as some very good whiskey. Uh, Wales has similar wilds in the north, uh, around Snowdon National Park. Did the, your, your literary characters help you better appreciate Snowdon and, and the, the natural wonders of North Wales? Yes, on my great loop around Britain, after Gerald of Wales, he handed me over to Anglo-Irish writers called Somerville and Ross, two women. And I went up Snowdon Mountain itself with them, which they'd done in, I think, about the year 1903 or something. They were Victorian Edwardian ladies who'd gone up in full skirts and hats and um, walked to the top. Uh, in those days, there was nothing at the top other than a very small hotel, which uh. shouldn't have been called hotel because it was falling down, whereas now there's a railway to the top of Snowdon. Yes, again, you look at it through their eyes and, and you see what was then the most extraordinarily empty place that is now. The, there are queues of people climbing Snowdon. Mm. It's a very different experience. Different experience. 
Peter, I love this notion of traveling around Britain, kind of oblivious to the century. You're bouncing all through the centuries, as as you do when you sightsee around England. And what you've done is assembled a series of great minds, great lovers of culture and nature and heritage who write about it so beautifully. They're your guides, and they're passing the baton from one guide to the next. Who is your favorite guide? Which literary um, great? I don't know if you know Wilkie Collins. I got very bogged down with him in a very good way. He was a contemporary of Dickens, slightly younger than Dickens, taken under Dickens's wing. And as a young man, his father wanted him to be a lawyer, uh, but his father died. And so he threw that up immediately and became a writer. And he went around Cornwall um, before there was a railway in Cornwall. So it's called Rambles Beyond Railways. He, he wrote this book when he was a very young man. And I got very stuck with him. I wrote two of the first three chapters I spent with Wilkie Collins because he's so interesting and he describes everything he sees in such exquisite detail. All those little coves and Cornish villages. Um, but what kind of detail, Peter? Because when you say those coves, I can almost imagine the pilchards are running. And, you know, this is when there's a one-day opportunity to harvest all these these big herring, and they blow the horn and everybody runs down, drops what they're doing, and, and, and they go out and they drag in buckets of pilchards. I mean, there's just these ways that we can get into the past that we don't have an opportunity to experience today, but we can learn about it and we can go to those places. What's an example of something vivid from, for example, Cornwall with Wilkie Collins? Yeah, that that is very vivid. He describes that, as you've just described, the fish coming in and the horns blowing and the the entire village rushing to the front and dragging all these fish in uh, and working through the night with torchlight. There's beautiful descriptions of that. He also describes, it's one of you can go to the pub where this happened, but he, he went to a small inn and he was part of a, he witnessed a smallpox party where a doctor had come all the way down from London, which was a big deal in those days, carrying a small amount of smallpox matter, as he called it, which he was injecting all the babies with and all the women of the area would turn up with their baby and have the baby inoculated, which had a lot of resonance with um, what we've been going through today. Fascinating. We're rambling around Britain with author Peter Fiennes right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Peter followed the trail of 12 great British writers to bring today's Britain into focus through the lens of the past that these authors provide. His book is called Footnotes, A Journey Round Britain in the Company of Great Writers. Peter's also the author of Oak and Ash and Thorn, The Ancient Woods and New Forests of Britain. His latest title is A Thing of Beauty, Travels in Mythical and Modern Greece, which a reviewer for The Guardian called A Sun-Drenched Hymn to Greece. We'll share a conversation about that in an upcoming edition of Travel with Rick Steves. What about Bath? You know, Bath is so famous for its decadence and that sort of high society escape from London back in Georgian days. Yeah, Bath is there, and and I slightly rushed past Bath and Bristol because I spent so long in Cornwall I had to get a move on. But I did drop into Bath briefly because at that stage I was following a woman called Celia Fiennes who rode around Britain uh, in 1660s, 1670s um, on horseback, accompanied by two servants, and that's it. And it was a very rare and strange thing for a woman to do in those days. And she kept a very detailed diary of floating in the baths at Bath with, um, she had this kind of voluminous bathing suit and she was slightly sneery about all the local women who weren't wearing quite enough. There's so many dimensions of English society that you can get by traveling not only around geographically but around through the centuries. There's this concept of the shifting baseline syndrome. Can you explain to us what that is? 
Yeah, it's a sort of conservationist term, really. It came up um, originally when they were studying fish numbers um, a couple of decades ago and trying to work out why it was that we didn't feel that there were fewer fish in the sea, although there's always that sense in the air that there is. But um, shifting baselines, it's very hard to fix what the baseline of normality is, which is why it was so interesting to go around with these different writers and see what they described. So when Wilkie Collins describes the millions of pilchers that are almost throwing themselves onto the shore in Cornwall, uh, obviously we don't have that now. The pilchers have gone or they've come back slightly since. So shifting baseline is, is what it means. It's, it's very hard to know what normal is. It's, tr- it's, a, it's the challenge to see things in the context of the time. Yes. And what are the normal numbers of wildflowers to find in the meadows? Or yeah. uh, given that we know there's so much pesticide around, what, what is normal? We, we kind of forget so quickly because we're humans and we adapt so rapidly to the new normal. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Peter Fines, and his book is Footnotes, A Journey Round Britain in the Company of Great Writers. Peter, I really had a sense that, that you enjoyed your travels and that your focus on the literary uh, greats in that dimension enhanced the travel experience. In fact, you wrote in the book that you had a lot of fun, you saw some incredible sights, and you drank in some amazing pubs. Let's wrap up our, our discussion with a chance for you to to have a pint with, with one of these writers. Who would you have a pint with, and what would that experience be? It's a very hard one to choose who I would most like to have a pint with. I think Charles Dickens would have to be the most fun. And the great thing is, of course, London is dotted with pubs where Dickens drank himself and wrote about vividly and many of his characters appeared. So all those Oliver Twist characters, you can see the pubs now today and you can go and drink in them and you can sit by a roaring log fire and imagine Dickens as you do so and raise a glass to him. God, it's such just when you were saying that in the fire and raising a glass and you know, the etched glass on the windows and the and the well-worn furniture and the creaky old hardwood floors and, and the clientele today that all you got to do is swap out their wardrobe and, and they're from the Victorian times. There's some opportunities that way, aren't there? If there's one thing we've done well in this world, the British, I think it's the pub. They're still absolutely vibrant places despite the last two years. And Absolutely. There's pubs which were drunk in not only by Dickens, but by many others of the authors in my in my book. And you can go and raise a glass to them all, I would recommend. Okay. Uh, on my next vacation, I'd like to go to a... I've, I've got a number of great pubs uh, in London, in small towns, and I'd like to read one book that would enhance my travels in Britain with this dimension of going back in the time with the help of a literary great. Which one book would you recommend I use to enhance my travels in Britain? Oh, goodness, what a difficult question. Other I than think, your book, um, Footnotes. <laughs> <laughs> you talked about Samuel Pepys's diary, which, of course, is 300 years old and more. But even so, to this day, you read those little snippets of what life was like in London in those times. And he was an enthusiastic pub visitor. And it really comes roaring back to life. So I would go for Samuel Pepys's diary. There you go. Peter Fines, thanks so much for joining us. You got me all excited to go back to England and do it with a little more focus on, uh, on the literary heritage. And thanks for writing Footnotes, A Journey Round Britain in the Company of Great Writers. Thanks again, Peter. Thank you. After all that walking around Britain, wouldn't you say it's time for a nice cup of tea? London-based tour guide Britt Lonsdale accompanies us into the traditions of tea time in England. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves.
After a busy day of hiking in the British countryside, or when you're seeing the sights of London, by three or four o'clock, you could probably use a little break. The British have come up with an ideal way to put an elegant pause in the day with afternoon tea. Britt Lonsdale is a Blue Badge Certified Tour Guide in London. She's our companion for tea right now on Travel with Rick Steves. And to help us clueless Americans know a little more about what to expect and what's expected of us. Britt, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, Britt, you've spent years taking Americans around London as a tour guide. I find people are very interested in these teas. What can we learn about teas to understand that part of English culture? Afternoon tea for English people is just such an automatic ritual that uh, we never really think too much about it. We think that afternoon tea really started. One of the people given credit for it is the Duchess Anna Maria, who was the seventh Duke of Bedford's wife, and she found the distance between lunch and between dinner a little too far, and so she got little sandwiches, cake, and a pot of tea served to her. And it's thought that she was the person who really started it off, although various other claimants uh, are there if you read about it. But it's just a wonderful little ceremony, and it's evolved over the years, and it's become something that uh, you just tend to enjoy to make a bit of a fuss of yourself over. You know, it's nice to treat yourself to an afternoon tea, and it's so delicious. But I do warn you that it bypasses the alimentary canal and settles (laughs) immediately on your hips and thighs. (laughs) You could call this Victorian then, couldn't you? Was it 19th century? Yes, I think. I mean, tea, of course, has been a rage for, for much longer than that, really. But uh, it's thought that the real afternoon tea as we know it today probably evolved during that time. And originally it would be for people with a lot of time on their hands as opposed to the working class? or Well, or... I would imagine so, although I think lots of people did like to try and, you know, say that they took tea, certainly. But nowadays I think everybody really enjoys a good afternoon tea. But it's still not for people on a limited budget because if you go for a really posh afternoon tea at somewhere like the Langham Hotel or the Ritz or the Landmark or Fortnum and Masons, you're going to have not much change left from about 40 pounds. That's a lot of money. Last time I was in London, I learned that you can split a tea. Is that is that actually kosher if two people want to order a $60 tea, split it? Well, you and I did at the Wolseley, I seem to remember, and we were treated very nicely there and allowed to do that. Yeah. Um, if you were to go to somewhere like the, you know, the Ritz or the Langham... That would be Langham, frowned Fortnum, on there, I suppose. Well, I'm not sure. I think you could probably get round it. I mean, probably you could what probably you could order do. a cup of tea, one person, and the and the whole thing. I together. should imagine you could because it's yeah. very very filling, and you get an awful lot of food. So, oh yeah, um, filled us both up. <laughs> it certainly did. That's so lovely. Hey, Britt, uh, there's a little confusion among uh, travelers between the terminology. You hear about cream tea, afternoon tea, high tea. What are the differences there? Well. A cream tea and afternoon tea tend to be a fairly similar sort of thing, really, in my view. High tea tends to be something sort of like an early tea that you would give um, children, perhaps when they came in from school, something with a little more substance to it, where you might have something called Welsh rarebit, or you might have, yeah. um, you know, that wonderful thing that we serve beans on toast with it, or something like that. It's the sort of thing that I would give to my children if they came in and were oh, starving okay. and couldn't wait for dinner. So a high tea is more of a meal, then? Yes, a lot of uh, visitors refer to afternoon tea as high tea, and I guess we don't really correct them anymore, not that we really mind. (laughs) Okay, but that's very good to know, because I think what we're thinking about is the afternoon tea, and that's with all the ritual, and that's where you'd go to the fancy tea room in in a fancy hotel or something like this. 
It is really, and the sort of thing that you'll be served, you'll be served little sandwiches, very dainty sandwiches with the crust cut off the bread, um, the cucumber sandwiches, sometimes smoked salmon. You will have egg and cress sandwiches, and then you'll have scones. There's great debate about whether you pronounce it scone or scone. The majority of people pronounce it scone, but quite a number pronounce it scone. It, it varies, but this is like a little cake, often with currants in or sultanas or raisins. It depends. They're served in very different ways, but generally that's how they are. And you cut them in half and put strawberry jam on either side and Mm. then a great big spoonful of clotted cream. Clotted cream is about, I think it's probably a minimum of 55% fat, which uh, to you in the US would probably qualify as butter. Uh, It's very, very rich, and it's quite delicious. You're just getting me all excited here, Britt. (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yes, I got to admit. Now, what I like like to do is those beautiful scones or scones. I slice them very thinly so that I can have almost like a loaf of bread, and then I can put the clotted cream and the the jam on each little thin layer. Is that kosher? (laughs) Well, um, you know, it depends. I think you can do pretty much what you want. But um, the way I tend to do it is cut them in half and then put the strawberry jam and then a dollop of cream on the middle. And I keep two halves separate um, and eat them just like that. You sort of eat them in one half. And then, of course, you've got to leave some room for pastries and cakes which will follow. So it's not something that's to be hurried. There's an elegant aspect to it, and you're expected to take your time over it. If I went for afternoon tea at three o'clock, I certainly wouldn't expect to leave much before about five or 5.30. And I probably wouldn't eat much that evening either. I bet not. So help us envision this. You get this uh, three-tiered silver tray, don't you? You do. Very often it's presented like that. Take us through that from the bottom to the top. Well, from the bottom, very often you will have the sandwiches, and they'll be finger sandwiches. So if you imagine a slice of bread cut into probably about six segments, sometimes they'll be in triangles. Without the crust? Oh, without the crust. Yes, the crust. Uh, I remember reading somewhere um, somebody saying, uh, yes, if you didn't slice off the crust, what on earth would you give to the poor? Which I thought was very snobby. But you cut them and you make them as delicate and dainty as possible. And then on the next tier up, you've got scones. And then on the final tier, you've got very tiny little cakes. Oh, this sounds so good. I'm speaking with Britt Lonsdale. And Britt is a blue badge guide. She's helped me for years in London as I work on my guidebook there. And we'll have Britt's contact information on our website at the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Cheryl's on the phone in Portland, Oregon. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Great. Um, I was calling with a comment for afternoon tea, a place I wanted to recommend, which is the Dorchester Hotel. I've been there twice for afternoon tea and really enjoyed it. Great food, great ambiance, and a very relaxing atmosphere. The Dorchester? Mm-hmm. Absolutely lovely, and I would agree completely. It's a marvellous hotel, and it does a very good afternoon tea. Cheryl, when you were having the tea, did you have the uh, the three-tiered silver setting? Yeah, well, actually, they brought the platter sandwiches, which you could select from, um, and that was my downfall. <laughs> ate too many of those, but then later on, they brought the three-tiered with the scones and a couple of other items with the clotted cream and the jam, and then later, they brought the platter of desserts, which you could select from. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, it was They do do food. that sometimes. <laughs> now, Cheryl, were you surrounded by what seemed like, you know, uppity, uh, aristocratic English people? Or was it something that a tourist could feel comfortable in? Um, I would definitely say a tourist could feel comfortable in it. They do have a dress code, 
but if you have slacks and a nice shirt or, you know, a nice coat or something like that, you would definitely fit right in. And I never felt at all uncomfortable or that it was stuffy. The, the staff at the hotel, they were great. Just made the whole experience great. Now, one thing I learned when I was having my tea is that the actual selection of tea is important, too. Britt, what can you tell us about the variety of teas you might be able to choose from? Well, there's a huge variety, but the most important thing to remember, I think, is that we always have it with milk. Sometimes I've noticed when I've gone with groups of people or or individuals, they don't expect to have milk in their tea, but most of us will have milk automatically, and I know that you don't. Um, The sort of teas that will be served for afternoon tea will be things like Darjeeling. A lot of us, me particularly, like a tea called Earl Grey. Apparently the Queen's very fond of Lapsang Souchong, but you can have anything really for afternoon tea and you certainly won't have, um, you know, fruit teas or anything like that. It'll always be Indian or uh, China tea, that sort of thing will be served. And I think something like Darjeeling is usually a light sort of pleasant tea. Often places do their own afternoon tea blends, things that they feel are suitable. Certainly at the end of it, you'll have drunk so much that you will almost undoubtedly have a massive caffeine and sugar rush. (laughs) (laughs) So Cheryl, on your next visit to London, what are your tea plans? Um, I would definitely go back to the Dorchester. It was, you know, I thought about trying different places, but the experience there was so great. It's just you, you go with what you know, and since it was a enjoyable experience, I would definitely go there again. Sounds good. Cheryl from Portland, thanks for the call. Thank you. <laughs> and Diana in Santa Fe emails us, and she writes, When in London, I had high tea at Brown's Hotel, at the Ritz, and at the Stafford Hotel. They're all great and fairly pricey. What are some of the less traditional places that serve fine afternoon teas? Britt, uh, do you know about the high tea at Brown's Hotel, at the Ritz, at the Stafford? Yes, I do, actually, and I've been to all of them. Um, In fact, if you look at my figure, you can tell that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I'm something of a great enjoyer of afternoon tea. But, um, you know, they vary tremendously in terms of the sort of ambiance or atmosphere you want because some places will have music, sometimes they'll have a piano player, sometimes they'll have a little chamber orchestra. So you can go very grand and glam or you can go very low-key, and an awful lot of little places will do afternoon tea. Um, so it really rather depends what sort of experience you want. You can go into many cafes in London, very simple little cafes, and they will give you a scone with jam and cream. Cheaper places, perhaps, and perfectly nice, just behind Kensington Palace, you have the Orangery, and they will do an afternoon tea where you can just have um, jam, scone and cream and a cup of tea, and it'll be much less expensive than, you know, the big £40 layout for something a little more glamorous. Those are the sort of places. Or else you could go, uh, you know, into any little hotel and and not have the the full Monty, as we say, and uh, just have a scone and cream. You know, there's plenty of places where you could find this. So I suppose you can talk to the people in your hotel, you can look at your guidebook, or if you hire a private guide, guides will all have experiences like you, for the place to go for a tea, depending on your budget and, and how glamorous you want to go. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about afternoon tea, the ritual of a fancy break in the afternoon with Britt Lonsdale, who's a Blue Badge Guide in London. She joins us from the Travel with Rick Steves show archives. Basically, the teas are in the afternoon. What, what is the typical time for tea? Well, usually what we would think would be about three o'clock. Having said that, such is the popularity of afternoon tea. You will find a lot of places 
well, I hesitate to say cashing in on it because obviously they're meeting a demand, but you will find places that will start doing it very early. For example, the right. Ritz Hotel, they serve it from 11.30 in the morning, then at 1.30, then at 3.30, then at 5.30, and then at 7.30. They have various hmm. sittings. So that's, uh, you know, really quite a lot of afternoon tea. But um, the Langham Hotel that recently won an award for their afternoon tea, they serve it between two and six. It's almost always best to have a reservation, however, because they do get popular. It's the sort of place where you would take somebody to celebrate something, you know, or if you've got visitors in town. I had some Indian friends in town and took them to Fortnum and Mason's a little while ago, and they absolutely loved it. Although they were wearing jeans, which they thought, of course, was terribly fashionable and We had to be tucked away in the corner because there is quite a strict dress code and jeans, whilst to them would have seemed the height of fashion, uh, to the people in Fortnum and Masons was, you know, not the correct dress. So you may get in with casual dress, but you're likely to be tucked away in a corner. Quite probably. Yeah. Last time you were enjoying a tea with one of your friends in London, what was a a faux pas you you recognized from Americans that were there in the room? Or what, what is something that you would warn us about? Um, What I would say would be go with the flow and go with the experience. Don't go to afternoon tea and say, oh, no, I don't drink tea, (laughs) because why are you there if you haven't uh, decided that you're going to have a cup of tea? Try it with milk, you know, and just see the way you do it. One of the things that is so incredibly endearing, I find, about um, a lot of the American people I go around with is how sweetly they ask, how is the right way to do it? Um, Should I be doing it like this? Should I be doing it like that? And I find that completely charming and it makes me take them to my hearts because there really isn't a completely right way or you will get some very stuffy English people or say, oh no, milk in first or, you know, no, 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 you must do your scone this way. But to be honest, I don't think it really matters as long as you love the experience and, you know, just lap up the atmosphere. Probably make a point to take your time. You don't want to rush a tea. Definitely not. And anyway, you can't because if you start you know, eating it all madly, you'll, you'll be so full, you, you just won't be able to manage the rest of it. So take it very, very gently. A question about the tea itself. What's the thought between loose tea and tea that comes in a bag? Well, I don't think in most of the really good afternoon tea places you will find tea in tea bags. You'll find loose tea. Um, that's really perceived as being the classiest way to serve it. Right. And you will get a little strainer you know, so you'll strain it into your cup. That sometimes mm-hmm. comes as a bit of a surprise to people because they're not used to doing that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Britt Lonsdale, who's a blue badge guide in London. Britt, let's close it off by just taking us to your favorite place for afternoon tea in London and paint a little picture. Well, one of my favorite places, and it's certainly not the most glamorous place, is Fortnum and Mason's. It's a big store on Piccadilly, and when you go in at street level, there are lots of lovely teas for sale. Um, It's just really beautiful inside, and I love going upstairs to the Georgian restaurant on the fourth floor, which they lay out for afternoon tea. There are lovely, comfortable sofas, so comfortable that I went there with my children once a while back, and one of my boys fell asleep. That's how comfortable it was. And there's a man playing the piano, playing all sorts of popular tunes. He'll play requests. It's all very refined and very sort of um, peaceful. You're up above the roar of the traffic and uh, you're served so nicely. Proper napkins, not paper napkins or anything like that. Lovely little strainer for the loose leaf tea that's uh, brought to you. 
in a lovely teapot, of course. Everything is so nicely done. The devil is always in the detail. And for me, the detail at Fortnum and Mason's is perfect. And especially, of course, the fact that the sandwiches, the scones, the strawberry jam, the clotted cream and the little pastries are just so delicious. That's my favourite. Britt Lonsdale, hearing you talk just makes me want to raise my pinky and have a delightful <laughs> time at Fort Newman Masons or some great place like that. Thank you so much well, for joining go. us. Okay, next time we're in London. It's a pleasure. It's afternoon tea. Britt Lonsdale, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Have you ever tried to capture your travel impressions in a haiku poem? Send us yours from the link at ricksteves.com slash radio, and we might read it on the air one day, like these listeners did. Sometimes what you imagine your travels will be like, and how they turn out, can prove to be two different realities. Here's some examples in the form of haiku written by our listeners. Karen Bray of Columbus, Indiana, led a group of two dozen American high school students on a trip to Europe which inspired this haiku she sends us. High school travel group, four countries in six short days. Where's Taco Bell? Annetta Miller from Marion, Illinois, sends us one that might resonate with a few parents. Travel with adult child. No more burgers to eat. When can I stop footing the bill? Imazel McVeigh from Chula Vista, California, planned on seeing a lot of sights in London, but writes this haiku to confess what really happened. Buckingham Palace, Big Ben, The Tate, Shakespeare's Globe. We mainly do pubs. And Sarah Tuttle of Corvallis, Oregon, was surprised by the attention she got on an overseas vacation and writes us a trio of haiku about it. Backpacking with Meg. She, a guy magnet, not me, we fending off men. He said, I love you, look me, American girl, I want to marry you. Traveling abroad, too bad we tourists stick out, loud, lost, impatient. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Catton, Kaz Hall, and Donna Bardsley. Thanks to the BBC in London for their help this week. Keith Stickelmeyer read our listener travel haiku. Send us your own original haiku about your travel impressions, and we might even read it on the air one day. Details are on our website at ricksteves.com radio. We'll see you next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. My Facebook friends are a fun community of curious travelers, and you're invited to join in. To stow away with me in my work, play, politics, philanthropy, and travels, follow me at Rick Steves on Facebook.